Welcome back to The Call-Up, your go-to podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Arm Layton, and in today's episode, we are going to be talking about a lot of the prospects, the big-name prospects, and how they are performing in spring training. Some guys that maybe were surprisingly optioned for some fans. I'm going to talk about when you can maybe expect to see them up at the big league level, how they showed in spring training, what were some good things that we saw, what are some things that maybe they can work on, and some guys that are still at spring training with the big league club right now who have a legitimate chance to maybe crack the opening day roster and how things are going to shake out. For example, we're going to talk a little bit about Will Benson of the Cincinnati Reds, who I think is just about ready to take the reins in the outfield for Cincinnati, especially with the injury to Nick Senzel. I want to talk a little bit about the Yankees shortstop situation as we continue to see Anthony Volpe show out, but I think Oswald Peraza really deserves the first look at shortstop, so I'm going to unpack that a little bit and discuss the two youngsters over there and why both of them would be a better option than Isaiah Conner-Falefa from the jump. Unfortunately, Cade Cavalli of the Nationals goes down with an elbow injury. He's getting that checked out. We don't have any report there just yet, but there's something going on with his elbow. Injuries have continued to slow Cavalli. And then I just want to talk about some of the young prospects who have really impressed me in the World Baseball Classic. Of course, spring training, WBC, it's all really small sample sizes, but each guy I'm looking for specific things, and there's some things that have stood out to me across both. Both, and I think there's a lot of excitement around a lot of the young talent that we're seeing make their case in spring training, whether it is an Anthony Volpe who continues to make plays at shortstop, who continues to hit, or a Curtis Mead with the Rays who was recently just optioned. I know that fans were hoping that maybe there would be a chance for Curtis Mead to break in for the Rays on opening day or relatively early in the season. I still think that we're going to see Mead early in the season, but it is worth noting that Isak Paredes, I think, earned the first look at the position, at least at third base this year uh, with what he did last year. I do believe that Curtis Mead is the better option, but it's just typically how things work, right? You're not just going to relegate Paredes after he hits 20 home runs, after he showed some good things. I think he's more of a platoon bat, but it's not like the Rays have nobody to put it third right now. And I think there's just a lot of reason to justify it from a Rays perspective, especially because Mead did show well in a stint in AAA, but you could get away with the justification of saying if you're the Rays who obviously want to have an extra year of service time with Meade. I think that's very clear as we've seen Jeff Passan already mention the chance of maybe the Rays considering an extension with Curtis Meade, which is something that we're starting to see more. Oh, by the way, that's the one other thing I got to talk about, too. We're just cleaning up headlines today. How about Corbin Carroll and his big time contract with the Arizona Diamondbacks, that eight year deal for more than 100 million? Going to unpack that a little bit, too. But we're going to talk about really pre-arb contracts and those types of things very soon. Jack and I want to do an episode of prospects that we would give pre-arb contracts to uh, that would be similar to what we saw with a Corbin Carroll, with a Mike Harris, but we want to try to focus on guys that maybe haven't debuted yet as we've seen these deals start to become a little bit more commonplace. And I think for teams like the Rays, for some of these smaller market teams, this is the risk that you have to be willing to take to lock up your stars for a long time. They did it with Wanda Franco after just a little bit of big league time, but I think we might even see it with some prospects who don't have big league time. I know 
Carroll also had about a month and a half or whatever of big league action, but that's not really enough to say, hey, we're going to give this guy eight years. I think they were already pretty confident from what they've seen from the day that he stepped foot at their complex and has just really flown through the minor leagues in Corbin Carroll there with the Diamondbacks. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, but circling back to Curtis Mead. I really feel like with what they have talent-wise in the infield, with a Paredes, with also a Jonathan Aranda, and then of course they've got Wander Franco at shortstop, they've got Taylor Walls on the bench, and they've got Yandy Diaz at first base. This is a team that probably does not need to rush Curtis Mead. I do think Mead is ready to contribute, and I do think he's a better option than Paredes by the time we get to May or June. But if the Rays are really considering an extension with Curtis Mead, They really want to leverage, I'm sure, that extra year of control. If you bring him up a little bit later into the season, they've got an extra year of control to leverage in long-term negotiations with Meade. So it seemed like a foregone conclusion that he would get optioned after... Passon reported on the possibility of a potential long-term deal with Curtis Mead and the Rays. That's something to monitor, something to follow, but that's the kind of guy that I'm willing to take that chance on. He would definitely be one of the main candidates in that episode. Uh, even without the report, that's a guy that I would definitely say I'm willing to give that pre-arb deal to as a prospect because of just the bat-to-ball skills on top of the exciting power and the high-end makeup. And even though he's not a great defender, can play third, can play first, can get by at second. I think you could probably get him acclimated in an outfield spot if they tried. If not, I still think that the bat's going to carry enough weight there, and I think he's going to be a very special hitter for a long time. Looked really good in spring training this year. I want to start with Will Benson, who might not be the most exciting prospect here, but as we kind of fly around, guys who have performed in spring training and have not been optioned yet. Will Benson is somebody that I think has a legitimate chance to break camp with this team and in Cincinnati and and potentially be one of their better young contributors. Benson came over in the trade from the Cleveland Guardians. It was the Reds who sent over a a recent second round pick. And ultimately, this was a 40 man clear up role for that or clear up trade for them. Right. Because they've got a lot of outfielders on that 40 man. They've got a lot of outfielders on the active roster. And they also have some other guys that I, I think they probably like a bit more. I think Will Brennan more fits their mold, the Guardians, that is, of bat to ball, a ton of contact, uh, just just spray the ball all over the field. Will Benson is cut from a more similar cloth to Nolan Jones, who they also traded to clear up space on the 40-man over to the Rockies. And it's power, it's swing and miss, and it's walks. But the thing with Benson is he can legitimately play center field. And, and I think that's exactly what the Reds needed. They needed somebody that can play center field and has upside to potentially man the outfield. I think they needed outfield prospects in general, right? We always talk about the Cincinnati Reds and the talent that they have in the infield, even if not all of them are going to stick it short. Noel V. Marte, Ellie De La Cruz, you've got Edwin Arroyo, you've got Christian Encarnacion Strand, who's more of a corner infielder, but just, just to highlight all of the talent and the infield prospects that they have. I'm also going to talk about Christian Encarnacion Strand in a moment because he did get optioned and I think that was the right move even though he was lighting spring training on fire. Benson, I think, has shown us everything we need to see in the minor leagues and now it's just a matter of can he do it at the big league level. Benson fixed a lot of his issues. He cut down on the swing and miss a little bit. He improved his approach drastically, walking at a really strong clip at 16% last year. 
He's become one of the more patient young hitters you're going to find, and and that's a great thing to do when you are a guy that's probably a lot of power and a lot of swing and miss, that you are going to take your walks and be patient. But the fact that his zone contact improved as much as it did last year, I mean, Will Benson getting the zone contact up to 82% last season, that was one of the biggest improvements I've seen across the minor leagues, a 14% improvement in in-zone contact that is extremely, extremely rare. So he improves the end zone contact. The approach has always been strong, but I think was really accentuated when he's able to make more consistent contact and now add the walks on top of that. And then the power has always been there. We've always seen Benson as a guy that has plus plus raw power and just was not able to hit enough and not hit consistently enough to tap into it. Now we're seeing him do that. And he had a 90th percentile exit velocity of 106 miles an hour. He's an above average runner who I think can play a good center field. He's got a good arm, so he could be a plus defender in a corner. And I think he's going to feast power-wise there in Cincinnati. So I'm excited to see what Benson can do. I think he's going to get every opportunity there. And what he's done so far this spring, 11 games, he has 12 hits and 30 at-bats. He hasn't walked, which is surprising, but I think he's just really felt aggressive and wanted to go after it, and it's worked for him. I mean, he's hitting 400 with a 500 slug, but it is interesting when you're a guy that walked at a 16% clip all year, to not walk once in these 11 games. I don't care, though, because he's hitting the ball hard. He's also stolen five bags, and he just looks good all around. I'm very excited to see what this guy's going to do this year, and I think the Reds should give him every opportunity. This was a great pickup for them to capitalize on a surplus that the Guardians have, similar to the Rays, right, where the Rays seem to have that surplus of arms. Just because they're willing to trade an arm to clear up a 40-man spot doesn't mean that that arm can't be good for you. I always reference Joe Ryan, right? Joe Ryan was a 40-man crunch. They deal him with Drew Strotman to get Nelson Cruz. And ultimately, I I feel like the Rays, they would probably admit that they shouldn't have traded Joe Ryan, right? They probably should have found somebody else on the 40-man to trade because Joe Ryan is a damn good pitcher and is looking like a major rotation piece for the Twins for the foreseeable future. So this is what happens. Sometimes 40-man roster crunches force teams to maybe sell low on guys that they don't really want to, but justify in the moment. And I think Will Benson could very well be that guy and his ability to get on base, his ability to play all three outfield spots, hedges some of the swing and miss concern. And when you see a 14% zone contact improvement, you got to feel really good about that. And I think his strong start in the spring has him primed for everyday reps with the Cincinnati Reds this year. Very quickly to wrap up on the Cincinnati Reds in this context, I want to talk about Christian Encarnacion Strand, who was recently optioned to the minors. This was the right move. I I want that to be clear. I understand that Christian Encarnacion Strand, or CES, as I will refer to him through the rest of this episode to save the jumble of words and and from me having to try to stop over and over again, CES was spectacular this year or this this spring training and he was spectacular last year right in 2022 even through the trade hit 304 368 587 that's a 955 OPS between high A and double A and that double A tenure was split between a trade and went from the hitter-friendly Texas League to the Southern League, which is not as hitter-friendly, and he still put up great numbers there. So you can't take anything away from what he did. Also hitting the Midwest League when he was in high A, which is not a very hitter-friendly league either. He is a masher. He had 32 home runs. He is a very powerful dude that puts bat on ball. Velocity, 
is a little bit of a, of a challenge for him, but it didn't seem to be much of a challenge for him this spring training when he went 15 for 26. That's also known as a 577 batting average, four home runs, and slugged 1192. That's 1192. So, I mean, this guy could not have been any better in spring training. He only struck out two times in 27 plate appearances. I know you're probably thinking, well, okay, well, if he did all this last year and he did this in spring training, why shouldn't he start the year at the big league level? Well, there's a few things that that I think are, are part of the equation here. One is, can he play every day third base? And I think CES has worked really hard to get better defensively. And I think he has gotten better defensively. And it makes such a big difference for his profile if he can play third base. This makes him a much more valuable asset to the Cincinnati Reds. Of course, if he has to play first, his bat will still lead the way, and I think he's going to be a force in Great American Ballpark. But it's also important to note that this guy only played 48 games above high A. There is no reason to rush Christian Encarnacion Strand. He also doesn't have the best approach in the world. This is something that he definitely needs to work on. He's getting away with it in the minor leagues because you can get away with being more aggressive. You can get away with it in spring training, where he hasn't walked once or didn't walk once in spring training, but he also didn't strike out much. He struck out twice in the 27 plate appearances, so he was aggressive. A lot of pitchers are working on things, trying to fill up the zone, and he pounded pitches in the zone. That's what he does, but that still is something that can affect him. And even in this super small sample size of these handful of at-bats we just mentioned, He was chasing 48% of pitches, right? So this is a super aggressive hitter that would get exposed in a full season of Major League Baseball. When you look at what he did last year, even, his chase rates were among the highest in the entire organization at a 38% chase rate over the course of the season in high A and double A. So this is something that needs to get better because with the big leagues, against big league arms, with big league scouting reports, they will eat you alive when they know that you will expand the zone and that when you will get yourself out as a hitter. That said, I want to highlight just how far he hit some of his home runs, two of which were 109 plus mile per hour off the bat. One was off Drew Ruchinski, which went 450 feet at 109.5 miles an hour. Another one was off Brent Teller that went 460 feet at 110 miles an hour. So this guy's just hitting the crap out of the ball. He also had a double oppo off of Martin Perez, who has looked really good so far in the World Baseball Classic and in his limited spring training looks. He, he is hitting legitimate pitchers. Like, he is crushing good, good pitchers. That said... I think over the course of an entire big league season, he would get picked apart and maybe some of those bad habits would would come to the surface. So why not focus in AAA here, get more ABs under your belt. Again, this is another area where you can understand the Reds not wanting to rush it because why just immediately drain that extra year of control if you can very much justify needing to get some defensive reps and still needing to hone in on the approach a little bit. But everything else, it looks like CES has figured out. Is velocity going to give him some trouble here and there? Sure. But he crushes breaking balls. He still hits fastballs hard when they don't tie him up. And he's going to be a good hitter for a long time, purely off of just never missing mistakes too. But he needs to walk more. He needs to be more patient. And I think that's exactly why the Reds sent him down. And that's exactly what he's going to focus on is reps of defense, and also honing in on that approach a little bit. Another extremely aggressive hitter who is in the midst of 
a really interesting competition. And usually there's not that much intrigue around a backup catcher competition, but the Houston Astros backup catching showdown is is interesting to me because this is not only the backup catcher role for the defending champions, it's also a role that would, I think, be a big part of the offense that they get from their bench because Yiner Diaz and Corey Lee are two offensive-minded catching prospects. Yiner Diaz is the better hitter. Corey Lee has continued to get better as a bat. I think Lee is still slightly better defender. Diaz is not a great defender. The difference is Diaz is probably a little bit more comfortable playing first. They've tried him in the outfield at points. He played a little bit of right field at Corpus Christi. He played a little bit of left field, and he played a lot of first base. I don't know how he looks in the outfield. I won't pretend that I've, I've watched uh, much outfield tape. He hasn't gotten enough balls for me to really be able to uh, say what he can do out there. I think the fact that he's played some games out there is he could maybe play in an emergency. Uh, but just having a guy on your bench that you can pinch it and then keep him in the game, whether it's behind the dish or at another spot late in the ball game, I mean, that's always helpful. That's always helpful. And it's a really interesting role because Martin Maldonado is one of the worst offensive players in Major League Baseball. He's also one of the best defensive catchers and one of the best pitch callers, game callers, whatever you want to call it. He's basically a second pitching coach out there for these pitchers. So Maldonado is extremely valuable in that respect, but I think the backup catcher should be a bit more of an offensive-minded role. It's kind of backwards, but I think the Houston Astros are right to approach it that way. Corey Lee is not a bad backup catching option, and I think he's more of a polished defender behind the dish, but Yiner Diaz's bat honestly could be a very good asset to this team as a bench fill-in platoon and then of course that backup catching role there I think you could be a little bit of a Swiss army knife for them in that respect which if we're talking about roster spots if you can have a backup catcher that is more than just the emergency catcher that just catches on Sunday day games that's extremely valuable you want to use every single roster spot and maximize it as much as you can Diaz has the potential to be an above average bat at the big league level. And I think that's even selling it a bit short. He posts very, very solid contact rates and he hits the crap out of the ball. 106 mile per hour, 90th percentile exit velocity last year and 85% zone contact. That's spectacular. His big issue is the high chase rates, 37% chase rate last season. But this guy's got 20 plus homer power. He really does. And and I think he might even have even more in the tank if he doesn't hit the ball on the ground so much, 50% ground ball rate last year. And the bat to ball skills are pretty impressive. His problem is he feels like he can get to everything, so he swings too much. A, an above 50% swing rate, almost a 54% swing rate, way too high. He doesn't walk much. He only walked to the 7% clip. So that's the one thing that holds him back, but he's aggressive and his bat to ball skills and how hard he hits the ball allows him to get away with being aggressive. And this is a guy that can just really hit the baseball. So as a bench bat, I like Yiner Diaz more than Corey Lee. You know, Lee is somebody that I think is a little bit of a tweener. He doesn't really excel defensively uh, and his bat is probably better, right? Like that's, that's what has been his calling card a bit more over the last year or so, but he took a bit of a step back offensively last year, still posted an above average offensive season, still hit for some power, but I don't see as much consistency offensively, only 75% zone contact, not as much power. It just doesn't seem like he stands out as much uh, in that offensive profile and he's not an elite defender, so you can't really justify prioritizing the defense with the backup catcher here and Corey Lee over Diaz because the offensive margin, I think, is 
much wider than the defensive margin between the two, meaning Diaz is, I think, a much better and much higher upside offensive piece. And when it comes to the defense, I think Lee is a slightly better defensive piece. So all around, I think Diaz is the better option. And he is also more defensively versatile. So I expect Diaz to win this role. We'll see what they do. Uh, I'm very interested to see what the plan is from the Houston Astros. But I want to see more consistent at-bats for Diaz at the big league level. Really, the approach is the only thing missing. I would say approach and getting the ball in the air a bit more. But even a 50% ground ball rate is palatable with how hard he hits the ball. He just needs to improve the chase rates. And I think the chase rates are a part of the reason why he's been putting the ball on the ground more than you'd like to see. I hope that Diaz gets some more consistent at-bats at the big league level this coming season. A couple quick injury notes. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen a few injuries to to notable prospects across the, the minor league landscape through spring training this year. Andrew Painter diagnosed with a UCL sprain. Uh, apparently, they think he can pitch through that, so hopefully he'll be able to. Hopefully, Painter will, uh, I guess, just push through it, and we'll see what the Phillies' plan is there. Obviously, much more qualified people and much more uh, qualified doctors deciding on this, so I won't pretend like I have anything to add to that. I just hope that this isn't delaying the inevitable, and then he ends up getting the surgery later, and now he's missing parts of two seasons. Like, Hopefully, he can pitch through this. We've seen pitchers do it in the past. He's so talented. He's a consensus top three pitching prospect in baseball. And I think this does really kind of hold back the debut opportunity of an Andrew Painter. But I also think that if he's pitching through it, the Phillies would probably rather him pitch through it at the big league level once he proves that he can pitch to the same level. Because you'd rather have him kind of under surveillance of the big league team, of the big league pitching coach and everything like that. So I think he's going to make some starts in the minor leagues if he looks like he's 100% and is able to pitch to the level that we saw him throw last year, then I think there's a chance we could see him at some point a month or two into the season. But if he comes out there and he's throwing and it just doesn't look totally right, I think they may reevaluate their decisions. They may kind of wait a little bit longer, see how things are going. But it's going to be very fascinating to see how the Phillies decide to handle Andrew Painter. With Cade Cavalli, who is going to get his elbow checked out as we are recording this, it's a little different, right? Cavalli doesn't need to pitch in the minors anymore. I don't think he has much more to to show down there. It's really about health and command. The command has gone gone and come, and I think that the injuries have played a part in the inconsistent command when your shoulder's not feeling right, when your elbow's not feeling right. It's really tough to consciously repeat that release point because, you know, when your shoulder isn't feeling right, your body's going to naturally adjust, and I think that's a big reason why Cavalli has struggled with the command over the last couple seasons because he has been dealing with a lot of different arm issues. It's just another blow to Cade Cavalli, who is so talented, who looked like he was starting to come back stuff-wise. Hopefully, this is just a little elbow twinge and he's able to come back and, and avoid Tommy John surgery. But but what a big blow that would be. Still just 24 years old, so talented. Hopefully, Cavalli can be back soon. Also, George Valera re-aggravates a wrist injury, which is super unfortunate because Valera... That was something that he had surgery on, and his swing is so handsy. It is so explosive in terms of even the loud barrel tip in his load and the torque that he likes to generate, the whippiness to his swing. This is something that I really hope doesn't nag him, right? It's all about his hands. It's all about the bat speed and the way that he's really able to snap those wrists. 
Valera needs to be 100% for his swing to consistently be getting off the way that it should be in the way that he has been able to show it in the past. So I, I hope that the, the Guardians, or I hope more so that Valera doesn't try to force it back and rush things back. I know that there's a lot of pressure for him as a guy that is feeling like he's getting closer to knocking on the door of the big leagues and felt like if maybe if he showed well this spring, could have really expedited the timeline here with the success that he's had at times in the upper levels of the minors. But right now it should be focusing on getting right, getting healthy, and being able to consistently play and get your A swing off. Because I've seen guys try to play through stuff like this or try to rush back from stuff like this, and it really ends up hampering their production. Look at Alex Kirilov. He's dealt with a lot of similar injuries, and it really hurt him as he tried to play through that, and it just really hurt the production. And then all of a sudden, we start to forget that when they're not producing, when they're struggling, we just say, hey, this prospect is struggling, and forget for a second that it might largely be due to them trying to play through something that is very directly hampering their swing. On to the Yankees infield prospect tandem of Anthony Volpe and Oswald Peraza. Volpe, of course, the higher rated prospect, no matter who you ask. But Oswald Peraza, I think, is more ready to take on the everyday role at shortstop, really, right now. And that's not an indictment on Volpe, who still had a solid season last year, produced an 802 OPS and stole 50 bags, hit 21 home runs. I mean, he had a very good season. But to the standards that we had expected from Volpe after putting up a 1,000 OPS last year, or the year before that, I should say, back in 2021 to put up the 1,027 OPS in his first full pro season, I think we were expecting more of that. And so the 802 OPS came off as relatively disappointing. But remember, this was a 21-year-old who was starting the season in double A and then finished in triple and still held his own. And after a slow start, I think got better as the year went on in double A and then got his feet wet in triple. This is a guy that I want to see. And I know this is the Yankees philosophy. The Yankees want to see you dominate at each level before you get up there. Aaron Boone was talking about that. And yes, he has been great. Volpe has in spring training so far hitting 321 with an 1100 OPS. He's got a pair of home runs. He's only struck out six times in 33 plate appearances. That said, you know, I think Peraza has the more advanced glove. I think Volpe is a really solid defender. Don't get me wrong. But Peraza is a guy over the course of 162 games, I think would be among some of the best in the division when it comes to defensive runs saved. I think could be one of the better in baseball when it comes to defensive runs saved with his defensive skills. I think Volpe is a really solid shortstop, but ultimately, you're going to have to find spot for both of these guys. And why rush Volpe when you've got Peraza ready to go, someone who looked good at the big league level last year, has already played that full season in AAA after getting a taste of AAA in 2021, then played the 100 games in AAA last year. Was he spectacular? No, but another guy that I think started to get a little bit more comfortable as the year went on, still produced a 778 OPS, 19 home runs, and also played phenomenal defense. As I mentioned, another guy that swiped 33 bags. I think the Yankees have a good problem here, right? I mean, do you want your franchise player in Volpe to ultimately be getting the everyday reps at shortstop? Maybe. You know, maybe that's what they ultimately want to do. But why rush Volpe here? I think this is something that I, I look at the Yankees situation and I know for a fact that Isaiah Kiner-Falefa shouldn't be playing shortstop. But if Oswald Peraza wasn't in the fold, maybe I'd say, hey, you're the Yankees. You want to win now? Roll the dice on your big name prospect. And I know that Volpe has been swinging it a little bit better than Peraza in the spring. But Peraza's also had to face a lot more of the, you know, big league starters, a lot more of the A-team pitching rotations. 
if Peraza is not doing great through the first month of the season, then you can look towards Volpe, see how Volpe's doing in AAA and go from there. But I think if you go from Volpe to then Peraza because Volpe struggles, it's a lot harder to then go back to Volpe or figure out what you're gonna do or go to IKF. Like That doesn't seem like the right approach, right? Volpe is the franchise guy. He's the face of the franchise. He's the guy that they want, or at least that's what they want him to be, right? Like after Aaron Judge, Volpe's supposed to be that next wave, that next guy that they are hoping to build around. Of course, he gets the the Derek Jeter comps and all that good stuff. If you start with Volpe, he shows that he's not quite ready yet, and then you go to Peraza, it just doesn't look right. And I think that that is not the best scenario there. I don't think that's the best way to approach it, especially when Peraza has more at-bats at the upper levels, has big league experience, and is more developed, I think, on the defensive side and just more explosive with the defensive tools. So if it doesn't work out with Peraza, then fine. You, you can go a month into the season. You would have had, you know, a, a good deal of at-bats for Volpe at that point in AAA, you know, at least a little bit more to get a bit more acclimated there and then bring him up at that point if you wanted to do that. But I don't see the reason to go Volpe over Peraza with everything that Peraza has shown in the upper minors and with what he shown in a brief, showed in a brief stint at the big league level last year. Another intriguing competition is Oscar Colas and Gavin Sheets in right field for the Chicago White Sox. And I'll be honest, going into this offseason, I was a bit skeptical of Colas as a guy that could maybe start opening day for the Chicago White Sox because he's another guy with a super aggressive approach that probably puts the ball on the ground a little bit more than you'd like to see. And I just did not know how that would translate immediately to the big league level when he's a guy that you know played a majority of the season in high A and double A last year. He played 110 games in high A and double A and then only seven games in triple A. But here's the reality. Colas hit at every single stop, right? I'll take you through the high A numbers, 312, 369, 475. Goes up to double A, 306, 364, 563. Goes up to triple A for seven games. I know it's just seven games, but 387, 424, 645. So he, he was just hitting no matter where he was, no matter who he faced, lefty, righty, single A, double A, triple A, doesn't matter. Goes into spring training this year, and it's more of the same. And what's really remarkable to me, though, because I've been watching his at-bats specifically, and this is where you can't really take too much from the from the spring training games or, or numbers or whatever it may be, but you got to look at what your fears are, what your questions are around a guy, and if there's any semblance of them answering some of those questions in spring training, that always helps. I've seen a more patient Oscar Colas. I really have so far this spring training. Again, I know it's a small sample size, but this is a guy also with two strikes that it, when I saw him in the minor leagues with two strikes, it was still the same swing. His 2-0 swing and his 0-2 swing were the same thing. And I'm not saying change yourself as a hitter, but you got to have a little bit more of a plan. It just seemed like it was a swing, a swing, a swing. Now I'm watching him in spring training and he, he just he looks like a guy that wants a big league job. He looks like a guy that is trying to prove that he is ready for the big leagues. And when there's two strikes, he's looking to shoot one up the middle. He's looking to hit it where it's pitched. And that wasn't something that I saw as much from him from him during the season last year in the minor leagues. It was, let me do damage on whatever I can do damage on. Now it's, I'll try to leverage my hitter's counts, but when I'm behind in the count, let me just try to put this ball in play hard somewhere. And that's exactly what he's done. So... I'm really interested now 
and how the White Sox are going to approach this. This is a team that needs to win, right? This is a team that has underachieved over the last couple of years. And I think Gavin Sheets is probably a lesser defender. Colas has a, a rocket for an arm. Uh, he might not be the best with the routes, but I think he's gotten better in that regard. Regardless, I think that you are going to get more impact from Colas. And there are some questions about how he's going to hit the breaking ball. And, you know, is he going to be as aggressive as he was last year where he had a near 40% chase rate? Yeah, those are both fair questions. But the thing with Colas is he hit fastballs with the best of them last year a 370 batting average against fastballs. And if you go in the velocity department, he was better the harder it came in, the harder it went out. Against 95 plus, a 1,000 OPS. Against lefties, which is another really important note here. He almost had, he did have reverse splits. He hit 362 against lefties last year across every level. That's insane. So this is a guy that you could probably keep in the lineup every day because he hits lefties and righties. Sure, he might struggle against really, really good off-speed stuff. You know, breaking balls did him in a little bit last year, and that's something that could be a challenge. But I think I'd rather have the slightly more athletic defender, the guy with more power, and I'm comparing him to Gavin Sheets here, the guy with more power, the guy who's rarely going to miss a fastball that's, that's tugged over the middle of the plate, and frankly, just a dude that has a knack to hit. He's a guy that's going to kind of just defy some of the red flags approach-wise because I think he just hits the ball hard more consistently than people would expect. He's just one of those guys. If the if the White Sox had a prospect that was more big league ready in the outfield, like we're comparing here uh, with somebody like Peraza versus Volpe, then maybe I'd say give Colas some more time in AAA because I still did feel that that was something that should be considered, right? I did feel like that was probably the best approach with starting him in AAA, but I think he's making it extremely difficult with how comfortable he looks against really good arms so far in spring training to, to go with somebody like Gavin Sheets, who's a very underwhelming defender and has a much lower offensive ceiling than Colas. I think even if Colas struggles with the breaking balls, he's going to hit fastballs hard enough from both lefties and righties to be the more productive option than a Gavin Sheets. And also, you don't have to worry about playing much defense. Like, he's playing right field. There's a difference between playing right field and making the jump to the big league level and playing everyday shortstop while also trying to, you know, get acclimated to big league pitching. So, I think Colas might force his way into this opening day roster, and I think that's a lot of fun uh, because I think the White Sox need any help they can get right now. Unique situation where generally I'd say start him in triple. Here, I say maybe roll the dice if you're the Chicago White Sox who need all the help that they can get right now, uh, given that they have just underperformed over the last couple years. I'm going to talk more about the prospects playing in the WBC in the next episode uh, with Jack, where we're going to talk about those pre-arb deals that we would hand out to prospects. But I want to just give a shout out to Owen Casey. You know how I feel about Owen Casey. I feel like I'm probably the high guy on him, but I just love everything I saw from him in this World Baseball Classic. He looked spectacular, whether it was turning on stuff middle in, staying inside and, and going the other way, which is something that I really like to see from him. And also some good at bats left on left. Casey looks more advanced than I think a lot of people give him credit for as a big time power prospect who is very young. Speaking of advanced prospects who are young, Harry Ford was spectacular in the World Baseball Classic. I should note, by the way, Owen Casey, Chicago Cubs prospect, Harry Ford, Seattle Mariners prospect, but Ford looked great. Were there some moments where he should have blocked some pitches that 
maybe were blockable as a young catcher behind the dish. Sure. He's a guy that just turned 20 years old a few days ago, maybe a couple weeks ago. And he's facing established big league talent and also catching some very solid talent on that Great Britain team. Ford was so impressive. And what stood out with Ford last year, I think he's still learning to tap into the power. He's obviously still learning uh, how to develop behind the dish. But what was really impressive with him was how good the approach was last season. Uh, When in his first full year as he's getting acclimated as a catcher and as a hitter, he almost had, I think, one of the lowest chase rates in all of the minor leagues. I believe it was something around a 14 or 15 percent chase rate, which is comically, comically low. And he took that really polished approach against really good competition and still had easy takes in this World Baseball Classic. Again, against really good arms, had really easy takes. He hit a ball 109 miles an hour off of Brendan Little. That is something that I don't know if we've seen much of from Harry Ford. I don't know if we've seen a 109. So this guy, we know he's got plus plus speed. We know that if it doesn't work out behind the dishes, fallback could be center field. But the bat looks really good. And the glove overall looked really solid. He was receiving well. I thought at times the blocking looked pretty good. At times it was a little inconsistent. That's fine. <laughs> he's a 20-year-old catching prospect out of high school. But all of the stigma that comes with high school catchers, Throw it out the window with Harry Ford. He is unique. He is he's a very special talent. And I think this is going to be a big season from Harry Ford this coming year. Last thing I'm going to say on Corbin Carroll. Uh, this deal is awesome. The, the full breakdown here. And, and I'm loving this. I really am. For the Diamondbacks to lock up Corbin Carroll is just awesome. Because more of these prospects that show out early in their careers or just dominate the minor leagues... There's few players that are probably going to get screwed more in the first couple years of their big league career in terms of not getting the value on their performance, not getting paid their market value. And I know it's the way it goes, but I like this middle ground where it's you dominate enough in the minor leagues and you show well for 32 games at the big league level and a team has to make the tough decision of, Is this guy going to play so well that in a few years he's going to be way too expensive for us? And should we just roll the dice right now and and offer him $111 million over eight years, which is the exact deal with a club option on the back end? Or or do we let him keep playing and basically price ourselves out because a couple years in we have less years of control and leverage and he has more proven established production that's going to make him very hard to sign. And and this is the difference here, right? We see an, an Austin Riley sign a 200 plus million dollar deal. Corbin Carroll signing for almost half that it just shows you that it is risky it is a roll of the dice but you get to watch these guys up close you have all of the advanced data you get an idea of who they are as a player and everybody raves about Corbin Carroll's makeup this is a no-brainer deal and I know it's not my money but here's the thing even if Corbin Carroll does not hit his offensive ceiling which his offensive ceiling is 30-30 with also hitting for for a good average his offensive ceiling is one of the best players in baseball even if he doesn't reach that ceiling he is an 80 grade runner he is a plus plus defender and he has power even if he doesn't hit enough even if for whatever reason that plus hit tool is below average he just whiffs too much He is going to run into enough baseballs, he is going to play good enough defense in the outfield, and he's going to be fast enough to be a productive player. Will be a $100 million player? Eh, probably not, but also in six, seven years? 
maybe in terms of average annual value, right? That's 14 million AAV. If you are a three to four win player, which he would be even without major offensive production with the defense and speed and power that he offers, he would still be a three to four one player. You're not blinking at $13.9 million average annual value, especially when you can play all three outfield spots at such a high level as a left-handed hitter with that kind of speed. Here's the thing. It's probably more likely that he is better than a $14 million average annual value player through the duration of this contract, especially on the back end. And there are there's a club option for $28 million or something like that on the back end, which I bet they pick up. I know that a lot of guys that we expect to be great aren't always great. But this is one of those scenarios where even if he isn't as great as we think he's going to be, he's still going to be a valuable piece. And for that reason, I love this deal for the Diamondbacks. They might not get every penny of value if it doesn't work out, but they will still, they can't get burned. I really don't see how they can get burned on a deal like this, aside from injuries, knock on wood. But odds are, Corbin Carroll is going to be one of the best outfielders in baseball for a long time. This is why he was just baseball's number one prospect last year, and this is why he's going to be just baseball's number one prospect going into the season. His ceiling is off the charts, and his floor is still really high because of the skill set that he has. But that'll do it. We're going to talk a lot more about this on the next episode, as well as the World Baseball Classic standouts and some fun data points that I was able to pull from the WBC. A lot more coverage on the WBC in general on the Just Baseball Show, so go check that out. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Look forward to talking to you with Jack later this week.